0: This show is brought to you by Brain First Training Institute, ICF accredited coach certifications and applied neuroscience training. To become a brain-based coach, get certified in applied neuroscience, and stay up to date with what's happening in the world of applied neuroscience and coaching, join our Brain First community over at brainfirsttraininginstitute.com. Hey, it's Ramon, and welcome to Brain Coach Radio, where we hear from expert coaches, leaders, and trainers who are using applied neuroscience to help their clients get life-changing results. We discuss various coaching topics, neuroscience insights, business tips, and much more, all to help you succeed. Now, let's get into the episode. No interruptions. Enjoy, my friends. Kelly, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here and great to see you.
1: Thank you. I appreciate the offer.
0: So I'd love to start off with uh, really your journey into the education, training, and now uh, consulting space. What what did that look like?
1: Sure. Well, it actually began when I was a little girl. I always knew that I was going to be a teacher. Um, I used to line up my dolls and my stuffed animals and play school. And um, very early on, um, I was able to kind of assist my mom, who was teaching religious education on Sundays. So she would allow me to come in. And so I kind of watched as she interacted with the students and uh, engaged with them around discussional and topics that were religious in nature. Um, A little bit after that, I was able to be an assistant with the dance instructor that I took lessons from. Interesting enough, um, I was in high school at the time. She asked me to take a new student into the back room and practice, and the student was deaf. And I had no interaction with deaf people up to that point and wasn't quite sure how I was supposed to engage with this individual that I wasn't able to communicate with. Mm. Uh, So that really intrigued me. And I think that's what led me down to the path of special education. So I quickly learned through working with her and volunteering through Special Olympics that special education was the field that I wanted to go into. So I did my undergraduate work and got a degree in elementary and special education, very much intrigued by this concept of students with disabilities and how I could support them and help them achieve to their capacity and live as as much of life as was possible for them. During the same time, I was a nanny to two children who were microcephalous or small brain. Um, and really got to understand the family dynamics of how do you live with individuals with cognitive and and behavioral issues. And so that was really what motivated me into the career aspect of understanding um, how to work with predominantly younger children in the space of education. Um, So I began to learn about the functions of behavior, um, understanding how to do the adaptations and modifications for instructional, and also then begin to understand a little bit of the diagnostic prescriptive of each of the disabilities. But the thing that was always missing for me was the why. Really? I didn't understand why they were acting this way. So I understood function, but I didn't understand the brain. And so soon after... Um, neuroscience came out for the educational arena, I got involved with it. And it began to really open my eyes into the connection between the brain architect and the relationship to learning. It helped me to better understand this idea between emotion and behavior. And so finally for me, the why was getting answered. And I know that there's so much more we need to learn about the brain but it really has fueled this passion for me to get a better understanding of how the brain plays a part in learning and how do we decipher that into teachable moments and experiences that really enhance the lives of our children.
0: Mm, mm, mm. So what is the, the main role that you have now? Like, What does your day-to-day kind of look like?
1: So I I am an educational advocate. So my work really centers around research, providing um, presentations both directly to teachers, administrators, school districts. I've done a lot of training with families and parents to understand their child, particularly when the pandemic struck and there was home teaching and parents were thrown into this new role and saying, I don't have an idea of how to get started. What do I do when my child isn't engaged or on task? So I provided um, a lot of webinars to help them understand the role of the brain, the emotion and the behaviors and how best to work with your child around those areas. Um, I'm also an advocate right now for special education and that's always been my passion is to make sure that students with disabilities get the services that they need and that the services are really tailored to the diagnostic prescriptive needs of each child.
0: Mm-hmm. So uh, let's talk about what what's happening at the moment in the education space with COVID and at-home learning and those sorts of things. I know um, prior, like in the pre-chat, we were talking briefly about how uh the consumption for online learning is still pretty low i can't remember the exact figure but you know let's just say it's like 10 or 20 percent. maybe one out of every five people that buys an online course actually goes through the material of course that can in my mind it kind of gives us an indication of well you know how how's this working at home when there's online learning and also um you know parents are probably more involved i guess when it comes to teaching their children at home even though the kids might be taking online classes can you talk a little bit about how how is this all working at the moment uh, i mean i have no idea i don't have kids yet um i'm fascinated to know more about this what are some of the benefits that have come out of it what are some of the the, the things that are really working against the kids and 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 their, their education Talk talk to us about this.
1: So, you know, when the pandemic occurred and schools were forced to immediately pivot to a virtual world, that created a lot of turmoil around instructional delivery and how were they going to, A, deliver the instruction, particularly around the idea that not every child had access to technology or hotspots to be able to engage. Um, So teachers were required to learn a brand new platform of how to do instruction, either via Zoom or Google or something of that nature. And children were struggling also with trying to understand the technology. So the initial um, onset was shaky at best. You know, there were a lot of school districts rallying around getting support to provide computers and hotspots to every child. Once that was settled, the next thing that we had to think about was what was actually going on in the home. Uh. So we know that, uh, A, the brain is hardwired for connection. And that connection was missing. And that the brain looks for patterns. And those are what are created through the routines at school. And all of those routines had been disrupted. And so... We have children that are coming into a space being very dysregulated and they're being taught by dysregulated adults because they're in a space that's not comfortable either. And so there was a tremendous amount of learning that had to happen on multiple faces. One is the, the understanding of technology. The other is how to engage a learner when they're not there. So you can't use that human connection the same way we could in a classroom where we would have proximity. Um, So children were faced with trying to manage the device, manage technology when it may be coming in or out, or maybe they had to do it asynchronous because their sibling had the computer. We also had to think about the learning environment for our children. And as we know in education, We need to create a learning environment with an absence of fear so that the brain is able to engage in the information that's being presented. And so when children have all of these uncertainties, all of these anxieties and perhaps a chaotic home environment, it's really difficult for them to be able to engage in the learning and then be able to implement that learning through whatever tasks that the teachers design. So there's been a tremendous amount of learning that's had to happen. I will tell you that the teachers have been incredibly creative in the process and found numerous ways to engage children, whether it's through, you know, different apps that they're using, different activities, breakout rooms. So they they began to understand how to best use this platform to engage children to dialogue. And we know that children have to have a voice in school. Kids have to have that opportunity to collaborate. And so that pivot up front was a little messy to begin with, but I think it's gotten much smoother. Some children have totally benefited from this idea and have actually developed better relationships in some sense with their instructors. Mm -hmm. I've heard children talk about how they've been able to see their instructor as a human being and not just somebody that stands in front of class and delivers instruction. Um, So there's been some pros and cons. Um, I think our children with disabilities have suffered because they truly need that connection and they need a tremendous amount of modifications and accommodations to enable them the opportunity to engage. So it's been very, very challenging in that area. But, you know, like most things, there have been pros and cons to this idea of virtual learning. Um, And now as we come back to the classroom, there'll be turmoil there, too, as children have to learn how to engage in the structures of the classroom. And teachers have to learn how to engage with these children that are returning back to them who weren't the same children that were there a year ago. Mm.
0: Do you think there is going to be any kind of medium to long-term impact on children's development, kids that have gone through this when they're in the developmental stage, uh, or has it just impacted the way that they learn, or, or do you see that this is going to impact them as um, people down the track? And and is there a way we can, if, if it is impacting them negatively, is there a way that we can you know, somehow reduce the impact, mitigate any kind of um, slowing the the developmental process? Like, What what are your thoughts here, thoughts and insights? Well,
1: you know, I think uh, no one really knows the true impact because this pandemic was, you know, something that brought so much uncertainty with it. Um, What we do know is that it's had a tremendous impact on the mental health of society. Not just the adults, but also the children, and how they cope with it. Um, we know that both the adults and children have suffered with tremendous uncertainty, anxiety, depression, there's been an increase in substance abuse, there's been an increase in domestic violence, um, child abuse. So we know that that is going to have some repercussion on the mental health of of children. Um, one of the things we we hear a lot about in the research focuses on this idea of learning loss and how children were not able to accomplish the academic standards that were projected within the school year. However, I think the greatest impact is really more on the social emotional well being of the individual. And I think rather than the focus being solely on this idea of learning loss and how do we make up for that. I think we really need to work on helping the educators understand the neuroscience behind it and be able to deal with what the children are bringing into that learning environment. And until we uh, unpack that and until we begin to understand that our children are bringing with them a tremendous amount of pain, um, frustration that we need to be able to deal with that and unpack that before we're able to really get into the heart of learning. So we need to be able to help them to put aside that fight flight fear that they are so um, consumed with at the moment so we can begin to get into the thinking brain. Um, and those are some strategies that my hope is that school districts are taking a very careful look at in preparing teachers with the skills they need to be able to do this kind of work in the day-to-day instruction and activities with their children.
0: Mm-hmm. So what 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 do we need to implement here when it comes to the, the neuroscience, when it comes to uh, giving educators the tools that they need? what's our what's our first step? and and off the back of that, how far along are we, and how far have we got to go?
1: Right Okay, well, um you know I think that there's a number of approaches that are going to help to create this paradigm shift that was created with the onset of the pandemic. It's changed the way we think about education. And I think we are in a pivotal position to make tremendous changes in understanding how best to educate the brain. So the first one, um, first approach that I really think is important for teachers to understand comes out of the work of Dr. Ross Green um, from Collaborative and Proactive Solutions. And what he talks about is this idea that um, His approach is centered on solving problems that cause the behavior and not modifying the behavior. Um, And his motto is one that I absolutely adhere to, um, is that kids do well if they can. And when they can't, it's because they're delayed in the development of a critical cognitive skill. So when children are unable to demonstrate the expectation it's because at that moment, the demand has outstripped their capacity. And, you know, I've taught this concept for years and years and years, and it's really hard to gra- to grasp when you think about society believes kids do well if they want to. So if a child wanted to sit and listen to a, a show, they could do it, but yet they can't sit still in a classroom. Yep. And they're very different. Tasks and very different engagement. So, the difference here is that instead of trying to change the behavior, what we're asking the adults to think about is what are the lagging skills? What are the expectations that the child's having difficulty complying with? And then, what are those unsolved problems that the child needs help with? So, if we begin with just this thinking that children do well if they can. And I apply it in my other work with adults, of if you think about a coworker, and if a coworker is really not pulling their weight or having difficulty in a particular area, the first thought should be, "I wonder what's getting in their way." Mm-hmm. Instead of, "That person isn't doing their job, they need to get fired." And so it's a very different way of thinking. And as a school administrator, that was always the first thing that came out of my mouth is, what's getting in the way? So if the child isn't doing what you asked and they're demonstrating aberrant behaviors, what's getting in the way? So I think that's the first paradigm shift as you're thinking about that. Love it. But then then we get into the neuroscience and I think it really goes hand in hand with this approach when teachers need to understand the architectural structures of the brain and their role in learning. So they need to understand the neurochemistry, in terms of the secretion of hormones and how do we secrete these hormones and when are they involuntary? So if a child is consumed with fear and stress and they have a cortisol brain, we're not getting to rational thinking. You know, we're in that fight and flight mode and children aren't available for learning. And so this idea of punishing that behavior, instead of stepping back and saying, I wonder what got in their way, I wonder what's, they're afraid of or they're trying to move away from at this point in time. Two other things that I think are really important when we're just looking at the architect is understanding this idea of neuroplasticity and that as educators, we have that opportunity to create experiences that will change the brain. And so by creating these learning experiences, where children are able to have a voice and children feel empowered to be creative, we're giving them this idea of maximizing their uh, concept acquisition in the lessons that we're teaching. Myelination is another one where even though children don't need to understand, it, adults need to understand what are we myelinating in the classroom? Are we myelinating these negative thoughts? around, I'm not a good student, I can't do this, I'm never going to learn it, or are we myelinating this idea of the growth mindset that says, I can do this, I might not be able to do it yet, but I will be able to do this, and then, of course, the executive functions, and I do a lot of work in my trainings around understanding executive function, both from the adult side and from the child side. So if the adult A understood their own executive function and where their strengths and weaknesses were, they also need to understand the children in the classroom. So when they're designing lessons, they're working towards the strengths within the executive function. And then they're remediating those functions that are not as strong. So we're giving children the idea of growing their brains in a way that will support the learning that needs to happen in the classroom. So without that basic architectural understanding, our teachers, I feel like, are at a deficit. Mm. Um, And then, you know, I think the piece that we talked about, about the pandemic, really takes me to the emotional brain. And I think a couple things with this is that one of the things we talked about in your coursework was this idea of negativity bias, the negativity in the forefront. And then we tend to dwell on those events. So we're basically myelinating this idea of the negativity. And so our children who haven't had a positive experience in in school are always going to face each day with that negative bias. And so what we need to understand is that when children come into the classroom, when children misbehave, it's really this idea that they are bringing with them a lot of pain-based behaviors, mistrust, toxic levels of stress that are all being masked by anger. Mm -hmm. And as as we talked about in your class, we have to, as adults, engage in the work of reappraisal, being able to take that situation and reappraise it in a positive way so that we're increasing that um, frontal lobe we're decreasing the amygdala and the fear response, and we're equaling out and getting rid of that negative affect. And I think that if teachers understood that the child is not intentionally trying to push your buttons or create a distraction in the classroom, it's really a reaction to the stress that they're feeling. And if teachers could reinterpret that to understand the underlying cause of behavior, they would then begin to think differently about how to intervene. So instead of saying, you know, um, what's wrong with you? They're gonna start asking questions like, I wonder what happened. I wonder what experiences that child had. Um, And I wonder how I can help that child to regulate emotionally so that they're available for learning. Um, and I think those are some critical skills that without that reappraisal, we get stuck in the tradition of punishment and consequences when a child's off task. Mm-hmm. and so this again is where that I think the mindset of the adults has to change around um, co-regulating with children and Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with um, the work of Laurie DeSaltels. I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce her name. Her most recent book is called Connections Over Compliance. And what she talks about is this concept of brain-aligned preventative relational discipline. So, you know, she stresses that idea of if the adult's dysregulated, they can't regulate a child. And so we have to be aware of our own brain states to be able to engage in helping a child to regulate. And that it's a collaborative process where the child has an equal voice. And it's not us doing something to them, but it's us doing something with them.
0: Yeah. Is with all the things that you're talking about here, are there any differences that you see between our approach as? Educators of children versus uh, perhaps where a parent who is in a primary role of educating a child. Let's say that you know they're at home and we've taken on a much larger role. Are there any differences here? Uh, I'm thinking about you know how to navigate this as purely an educator is one thing, but navigating this as a parent slash educator might be a slightly different thing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And as a parent myself. Um, it was difficult um, to be able to put that emotional content aside. But I believe um, what you had talked about in one of our courses was something called cognitive diffusion, where we uncouple the emotion from the behavior. Um, so when when you're a parent, one of the most difficult parts is that emotional attachment to the child. And oftentimes we have to take that emotion and put it on the shelf so we can deal with the behavior in front of us. Um, What I oftentimes teach in my classes is exactly how do you do that? Mm. How do you separate out the emotionality? And And then it comes back to that understanding of your own brain states. And so as you get ready to discipline a child, you need to think about where are you right now? Whose needs are you meeting? And if that child could do the right thing, What would it be? How would it look? Um, So, you know, I I know as a a parent, when your child is struggling, it's extremely hard for us to let them engage in that struggle. And as educators too, sometimes we become the, the helicopter parent or the helicopter educator, and we don't allow children to struggle with these concepts. So as a parent, who's now forced into the role of educator, it's really important to take a look at how do you separate the behavior from the child and understand that right now, the behavior is what you don't like. There's unconditional positive love for your child, but it's the behavior that you don't like and not to mix up those two concepts. So we teach a lot um, around mindfulness, and how to employ those strategies so that we can kind of deliberately focus our attention and our awareness on the behavior and separate out our feelings at the moment. And mindfulness is also something that um, is so wonderful in the schools because it allows us to take a break from whatever's going on in the classroom. You know, whether it's a chaotic moment, whether it's, you know, a highly intensive structured learning activity that we just need a moment to relax our attention, relax our brain so it can process this information. But in in terms of parents, you know, they were forced into this role. The good part is they got a glimpse into what teachers go through. Um, Um, The bad part is they weren't equipped with the skill set necessary to be able to effectively necessarily manage it. So they were learning on the fly. But um, I think between being able to understand your own emotional states, your own brain states and where you're at, and helping your child to get from that emotional response up into the thinking brain is what helps everyone kind of get back on track.
0: Mm. What's the approach or strategy that has had the biggest impact uh, that you've seen when it comes to children and helping them in their uh, educational life?
1: Well, I think that the number one strategy that um, I preach is about developing connections and relationships. And there's tremendous research out there that really speaks to not only the fact that we're hardwired to connect, and that through that connection, there's a tremendous amount of development that occurs, both cognitively, emotionally, physically, that changes as we connect with others. Um, unfortunately, with the quarantine, there was tremendous isolation. And we saw that this connection piece, this building relationship was really impaired. And so when we go back and start thinking about building that relationship, one of the things we need to help understand is that there's unconditional positive regard for each and every child that we work with, whether it's your own or whether it's somebody in the classroom. But it's giving them this sense of compassion, even when they've done something wrong. It's accepting and valuing them without a judgment or being critical of the behavior or lack of behavior, depending on what the situation was. Um, It's building these secure attachments with each child so that we create this sense of relaxed alertness within the classroom. And so with that relaxed alertness, we're able to get these children to be... um, Away from the pain that they brought in with them, and begin to focus on the joy of learning, and creating, and you know that sense of inquiry of learning how things happen. Um, so relationships really are at the heart of it. And you know, um, I know there's this saying that says um, kids don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And once a child feels that you care about them they're willing to do anything that you ask them to do. Um, There's a lot of work around that with the um, growth mindset and Carol Dweck, how Mm -hmm. she talks about changing that mindset and it really begins with the adults. And then I also really like the work of Brene Brown who talks about how to learn to trust and building that relationship is building a foundation of trust with our children which then means we have to be vulnerable. And so she talks about having this courage to show up, even if you don't know the outcome. And for many of our children, particularly our children with disabilities, and most of my work has been with children with emotional disabilities, and they show up every day. Mm. Every day they show up. They have no idea what the day will be, whether they'll have any success or whether it will be another day of crisis for them but they have the courage to show up. And as educators, we need to have the courage to build a relationship, to let them be seen, to let them be heard, and to show them that they're worth it. Mm. And so at the cornerstone of any successful learning experience is this idea of relationships. Whether you're in a classroom or whether you're with your friends or families, relationships is really what drives that connection and that ability to grow.
0: Mm-hmm. How, how far have we come with this, with everything you're, you've been talking about, with the relationships, with the, the integration of some of the neuroscience and getting educators and, and even parents to understand their brains better and implementing a lot of this stuff in the classroom? How far have we come? How far have we got to go?
1: Well, I think we've come pretty far in understanding the importance of relationships. You know, that research has been around for years and years and years. And it's something that really is taught and stressed in undergraduate work. So teachers are coming out with the idea of you have to build the relationship. Now, the how to is the hard part. And that's oftentimes where they make mistakes of how do you build this relationship that's built on respect? Um, When it comes to... um, kind of where we're at. I think that the trend in education is that there's a lot of work being done around social emotional learning and understanding this idea of trauma. Um, And the, the work got started when there was the ACEs study that looked at the negative impacts and how it impacts our child's development. But I think the pandemic has also shown the light on the fact that these children are gonna come back with mental health issues. But I think what we're missing still is this understanding of educational neuroscience. It's that why. So yes, we might understand some of the social emotional learning components that need to be there for all children to be well-grounded and good citizens. But I think we're still missing this understanding of why. Yeah. You know, it's the underlying brain chemistry um, neuroscience component that helps us understand what's going on in that brain and how do we help every brain learn. So I think that's the area that there's still tremendous amount of work. Um, Thankfully, there's more and more research coming out every day in the field of educational neuroscience. the question is is it in the undergraduate development courses for our teachers our social workers the primary beneficiaries for our children to be able to understand how to get to the heart of learning so that every child feels heard valued and accepted for what they bring to the table
0: how do we how do we make this happen because even when the research comes out and, and this was the one of the reasons why I got into applied neurosciences uh, I didn't have the techniques and the strategies to be able to use with my clients because when I um, when I went searching it was all theoretical it was all you know particularly 10 15 years ago it was all uh, medical research and, and, and these sorts of things. So even when we've got more applied neuroscience type research coming out now, there's still like, you know, when I, I, you know, we can talk about it and I can talk about it with my students and I can talk about it with other coaches who have been through our program and it's kind of become more common with us, but I can walk out on the street and 99 out of hundred people won't have a friggin' clue what I'm talking about. <laughs> so right. how do we, How do we actually get it into the real world and so that it can can start having an impact?
1: I have a couple of thoughts around that. Um, So much like um, children with disabilities, we had to demystify this idea of a disability Mm. because back before federal law, these children weren't educated. They weren't allowed in the schools. And so... When we think of neuroscience, most people think, oh, nope, don't want to go there. I don't understand the brain. It's too much. I don't like the jargon. But if we can demystify it so that we can take the research and look at implementation of research into basic strategies, a basic understanding, I think that's where it begins is helping teachers, helping administrators, school personnel to understand you can do this, but let's break it down into a way that is manageable, that's relevant, and it's applicable to the work you do it every single day. Um, I think one of the terms that I've heard is initiative fatigue. Hmm. And so within the schools, with uh, you know everything that happened with the pandemic, there were all these initiatives. And I think right now to bring up neuroscience, they're thinking, nope, not gonna happen. You know, I've had enough of interventions, I'm done. But what's missing is this understanding is that every child brings the brain every single day. (laughs) So we have something to work with every single day in that classroom. What we need to teach our teachers is how to embed brain aligned strategies both through the academic as well as the behavioral and discipline side so that it becomes the norm in schools. So I think it begins with our undergraduate coursework. I think it begins with our in-service professional development for teachers and administrators and even at the district level. Uh, The research is there to say that when we use educational neuroscience, we have students with academic gains. We have increased motivation, increased engagement. The problem is we need to unpack it and put it in the hands of educators and school personnel in a way that they can understand, that they feel confident in implementing, and that they can move forward and do it seamlessly with throughout the day with their children.
0: The Neuroeducation Basics Handbook for Teachers. <laughs> That's, That's
1: exactly what we need.
0: <laughs> I'll get started on it. <laughs> what um, Talk to us about what you're working on now.
1: Um, well, right now I'm working on a number of things. So um, I am presenting through the Center for Teacher Effectiveness on how to get back teachable moments. So instead of spending time on minor infractions, how do you set up expectations? How do you set up your classroom so that every child is able to get their needs met without disrupting the learning environment? And so it focuses on the teach twos and making sure that teachers explicitly teach children, how do you get your needs met in this classroom? And then looking at how do you do unconditional positive regard for every child? So I'm working on taking some of that work and those trainings and embedding it across their fields to areas like positive behaviors, interventions, and supports. A lot of schools implement PPIS. Um, so there's this multi-tiered system of support. And this work of neuroscience fits in beautifully. I'm working on helping schools um, understand what does that look like? I'm also doing training for parents to understand how to help their child with some of the anxieties of going back to school. How do we help our child develop the healthy mind? How do we understand the emotional brain? Um, so I'm doing trainings with parents, both uh, parents of children with disabilities and without. I'm also working on writing some curriculum in terms of embedding some of these day-to-day practices within lesson plans so that teachers understand it's not another thing we do. It's just good teaching and making sure that children are ready. Much like an athlete warms up before they get engaged in their workout, same thing with our children. Let's warm up those brains and make sure that our children are optimal condition for learning.
0: Mm -hmm, love it um so as we're coming to the end of the show any final thoughts for our listeners for uh the parents for the educators uh and even for just people who um you know generally would like to know how to use their brain better um, particularly in a learning environment
1: sure sure so i think it's the first thing i would um advise parents, educators, um, people working with children, regardless of what state is that, the best way to care for our children is to take care of ourselves first. That we have to be in optimal condition so that we can help our children be the best they can be. We have to practice gratitude every day. You know, we have to combat the negativity bias. And particularly with all that's happened in the last year and so much negativity around, it's just practice gratitude every day. Um, Change the narrative of your story. Change the narrative for our children of their stories. Engage in the work around the paradigm shift so that you truly embrace this idea that people do well if they can, including our kids. And that... Rather than think about what's wrong with that child, thinking about what does that behavior tell us, whether it's the child or you know, someone we work with, um, being very aware of our own brain states, so that before we respond, we think about where we're coming from, and this again goes to any interaction. Um, Engaging in the work of that reappraisal, reinterpreting and mental contrasting, which I think for me has been so enlightening to just think about, wait a minute, just shift the way I think about that. It's not so bad. And if we can engage in that work of stopping and really thinking about it. Um, And then, of course, working on building positive relationships, seeing the good in everyone, and giving them that unconditional positive regard and figuring out what's getting in the way when perhaps they're not meeting your expectation. And maybe you need to reappraise what your expectation is. So I think there's a lot lot of work we can do in terms of shifting this paradigm so that we're engaging with one another at a different level in a, a way that perhaps more compassionate, a little bit softer, much kinder and less judgmental so that each of us can really thrive in the work that we're doing.
0: Kelly, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you about this. Uh, it's, uh, they're so, uh, these are such important topics and I'm I'm happy that, uh, you know, we're getting the information out there. Uh, where can people go to connect with you? What's the best place?
1: Well, they can um, find me on LinkedIn. So Kelly Spineau, for LinkedIn, so my profile is there. And they can also connect with me by my email address, which is kls.kids, K-I-D-S, at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. And, you know, I would love to be able to work with our schools and our families to help this become day-to-day practice for them and demystify the fact that neuroscience is something that isn't achievable but it's really a way of helping us understand one another.
0: Mm. Guys, we'll put the uh, links in the show notes so you can connect with Kelly. And uh, thanks very much for being on the show.
1: Thank you very much. I appreciate it.
0: That's it for this episode. If you want to support the show, make sure to subscribe, leave a five-star review, and then head over to brainfirsttraininginstitute.com to join our community of coaches. And for resources and products to help you upgrade your brain in life, including interviews with leading neuroscientists and health and high-performance experts, go to mybrainfirst.com. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you soon.